Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Julie Gould and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This is the fourth part of our series on careers in physics. Now in this fourth episode, the focus is on two physicists who in their own way have become STEM ambassadors and science communicators. One of them works at CERN, the other left academia, then started working with kids' science parties before switching to teaching. So let's start with our interviewee from CERN. Now, in the last episode, we heard from Lewis Armitage, a physicist turned data analyst who'd spent some time working at CERN. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about what it's like to work there, especially given that it's had so much media attention over the past few years. So I got in touch with John Butterworth. He's a physics professor at University College London and is also part of the ATLAS experiment at CERN. He's been involved in the experiment since the early days in the late 1990s, but it became a main focus of his work in 2005. Fast forward 10 years and on the 14th of May 2015, a paper was published in Physical Review Letters describing the discovery of the Higgs boson, which had happened a few years before. Now, as well as the discovery itself, the paper was also remarkable because 24 of the 33 pages of the paper were dedicated solely to the author list. That's 5,154 authors who contributed to this research. This is an incredibly large team to be a part of. And I asked John, how do you transition from doing a PhD where you're encouraged to demonstrate your independence as a researcher to becoming a member of a thousand strong team? It's not a solved problem, I'll say that. So whatever, I can give you some pointers to how it works, but I would say it doesn't work for everyone and some people do have problems with that. And and there is wasted effort, there's nugatory effort. There are people do a huge amount of work and then go to a meeting and find they've been working on the wrong thing. You know, that so someone else has already done that. So it's not perfect. It's not like some nirvana of everyone working in concert and, and to the best of their ability, which is maybe how I described it earlier. But it, it does it does at its best, it, it does that, but it doesn't always work. Um, in the end, you find a support group and you find what you're good at. And so people tend, it, it does boil down to interpersonal relationships often. And there should be a structure there that allows you to find out who's important for what you want to work on. Really all the experiment, the collaboration can do is try and set up a structure that makes that transparent so that 
you don't have secret clubs of people that you can't break into. But after that, you have to make it work for yourself, basically. And ideally, you know, as a PhD student, your supervisor should help you do that. So it's not there's not like one panacea. I mean, I think one thing people like any PhD, <laughs> probably the, the key thing in any PhD is perseverance, right? And that's probably true whether you're in a lab on your own or whether you're in a big collaboration. You have to get used to the fact that you will fail very often to do you'll either have done the wrong thing or you've done the thing wrong or whatever it is. That's that's research. That happens and you have to kind of pick yourself up and try again. When when you are part of such a big team and you are part of a publication that has thousands of names on it, how do you use that to your advantage? It's very difficult to, to pull out what part of the contribution you were when you're on a thousand authored paper. So yeah. how do you make that work for you when it comes to advancing your career? So... You should be aware when you're doing a job because it's useful to the experiment, but it's not actually you. Essentially, anyone could have done it, you, you need, or any any physics graduate could have done it. Um, and then you've got to think now. So now, what did I individually contribute? So if you get asked to, if you if you you're leading a paper, why? How is that paper different? Did you would that paper have been written even if you weren't involved? In some cases, yes, clearly we'd, we'd written a Higgs discovery paper. But so then how did you make it different? How did you make it better? What was it? How did you shape it? Or if you're leading a small analysis team and a group of people who were working on a set of papers, you know, what did you do with that leadership role? It's great that you got asked to do it, but you know, were you just booking the rooms and chairing the meetings? How, what happened? You know, what what science input did you have? And it's very difficult to fake that. And so in the end, you've got to have the things that you actually want to work on and, and, and have, you know, in the end, that's a story to tell. And I, I don't mean a story to tell in a kind of made up way. I mean, you have a plan yourself, you know, and, and if you're applying for, for well, initially postdocs, but in, in the end, fellowships, Royal Society Fellowship or a, a Research Council Fellowship, or in the end, faculty positions, it's that story people would be looking for because that's a sign that, not only can you be useful, which is a kind of minimum requirement, but if, if someone's looking at employing you for 30 years, well, your experiment won't last that long. What's your, if you have a plan, then it doesn't have to be all mapped out for 30 years. It just means if you've been able to steer yourself in the right direction, then they can have some confidence that it will carry on doing that and when on to the next experiment. And you, you know, you have a, you have a, a driving force in physics, which is different from just being carried along by the collaboration. The Higgs boson discovery was a huge success and it created a lot of media attention for CERN and for physics. So I wanted to know two things. Firstly, what's it like being at the centre of attention in the world of physics? And secondly, what impact does all this media attention have on physics as a discipline? It's, it's difficult. I think the, 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 the key thing is you have to be genuinely excited about your project and want to tell people and then the press's attention is a bonus. I think the way the whole... The whole um, publicity about the Large Hadron Collider and the Higgs, and it's, it's you know it's a very esoteric question that we're trying to answer in one way. On the other hand, it's a really easy thing to understand that we're just looking at what nature's made of it in the smallest, you know, if you build the best microscope you can, what do you see? That's really the bottom line. <laughs> and then you've got the big inspirational kit, which some people really like seeing the engineering and the, you know, the, the scale of the enterprise. Oh, it's enormous. It. Yeah. I've been to visit. It's incredible. It's, it's amazing. But what, you know, what you said when they switched CERN on, but actually CERN started in the 50s. And You're right. The did. tunnel was dug for an experiment that started in the 90s, in, early, in 1990, actually, when I was starting my PhD. Um, 
which was LEP, which is an electron-positron machine, but it was in a 27-kilometer tunnel. It was the same thing. It was studying a fundamental gauge boson that we already knew existed, but we found some very fundamental things out about how many generations of matter and things there are. It's not obvious why that wasn't such an exciting thing, and I think the difference was we had been making our attitude to public engagement had changed, and we had been making more of an effort to take people along with us and share the excitement. Um, partly, as I say, because we need the consent of the people who fund it, but also because you know why not? If we find, what's the point of finding out new stuff if you're the only one who knows kind of thing? So, so it's, we did sort of ask for it. I mean, I was involved in some documentaries in the run up to it. We'd had a long, a long build of here's another milestone on building the thing. Here's another one. Um, so we couldn't really complain then when when we did suddenly get all the attention and we were very glad of it in fact and one of the nice things with particle physics is it's not all down to like one pi and their lab it's there's a huge number of us so it was good that wherever anyone on the, in the media pointed their microphone they found someone who was excited because the excitement was real but it was also good that you know some physicists their worst nightmare is to be in front of a camera and that's absolutely fair enough you know you don't doesn't mean everyone doesn't need to do it so we're kind of used to it in particle physics that we specialize you know the three thousand people on the higgs discovery paper from atlas you know some of them write code some of them do electronics some of them do physics analysis in the final stages and make the final plots some of them have mainly spent their lives arguing for the funding and putting the teams together to build the thing so what is some of the fallout from this media attention that projects like the Higgs boson have had? Does it does it feed through to young kids at schools and becoming more excited and interested in physics? I'm not sure whether it, it really persuaded more people to do physics, but I think it's meant, you know, if you tell your mum you're doing physics now or your dad, they're more likely to, and you say, you know, physics like what they do at CERN, and they're more likely, it's more likely to you get kudos for it in a way that you maybe wouldn't have done before. You know, I'm sure it's not quite up there with I'm going to be a doctor, but it's at least it's something you can tell them, you know. Um, I think that's true. I mean, this is from interaction. It's not, I don't have hard evidence for this, but it's in, from interaction with use candidates to do physics at UCL and also kids in schools that I give talks at and things. One, uh, one nice thing is I give, uh, my my kids were in primary school and now they're both in secondary school and they often it seems to be a trend at least in North London that we have these um, secret auctions where pe- parents put up things they can um, they can offer and the other parents will bid for them like silent auctions sorry and um, I got persuaded to put in uh, an hour either after dinner talk or a lecture or a tutorial or whatever they wanted basically discussing the Higgs this was in around the time that we were finding it. And I was a bit embarrassed about it. It was a bit stupid. That and someone else at the school. It's quite the primary school in in uh, in in Kentish Town. Um, had you know, it's quite a, a high-powered parent parent body, I think. And someone was was Lady Gaga's designer, and they put lady, a pair of Lady Gaga's boots in, in there as well. And I'm thinking, how can you put you know, the Higgs up against that? It's ridiculous. Actually, my thing went for more than Lady Gaga's boots, so I was quite pleased All about right, that. Nice. <laughs> and, and that was around the. <laughs> had something to put on your CV. <laughs> yeah. That was because that was the peak. That was when it was in the news all the time. But that, I'm still doing that now, and it hasn't died away. I'm not sure I'd take on the boots anymore. But I, it, I always put it in because they always ask, and and it always sells. And I always end up giving a talk to a group of usually they buy it for the kids, but not always. Sometimes it's for them and their mates after dinner and things. Although obviously we've seen a peak, and now you know, and then we had gravitational waves came along next, and there are these big physics news stories that, that hopefully we've lowered the bar so that more physics stories can get into the news. Thank you to Professor John. 
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now, another way to inspire others into a physics career is to become a physics teacher. And one physicist who decided to go down this path is Dr. Tom Weller. Although he now works as an innovation analyst at Evenload Investment, he spent eight years working as a physics teacher at St. Paul's School in London. Now, his teaching story starts in 2011, after his second postdoc position at Harvard University in Boston. So at that time, Tom and his wife Vicky came back to the UK, and Tom took some time to reflect on his future career. So when we came back from the States, it gave me a bit of space to have a think, and to fill in time whilst I was having a think, I started doing science parties. And those science parties were a lot of fun. Sure reminded me... Uh, reminded me of all the teaching work that I'd done little by little over the years. So I went and helped out in some classrooms in Woolwich whilst I was at UCL. I'd done a gap year teaching English in Shanghai and lived there for nine months. So I'd had this smattering of teaching experience, uh, not least during my PhD and postdoc time when I'd actually been training other students. So I guess that was there in the background, but I'd never really considered it a career. And then these science parties just made me recognize how much I loved explaining stuff in a way that was fun and engaging. And when it got to the stage that our tenants were going to be finishing their tenancy and we were going to move back into our place, and again, I'd have to start paying the mortgage, I was like, okay, hang on. How can I do this every day of the week, this science party thing? I know, maybe I'll be a physics teacher. And I was lucky enough to find this job at St. Paul's. For my interview, I took my plasma ball in, and I was sitting in the um, the waiting room. There was another very nervous young man in the waiting room, but he was nervous because he was interviewing to become a student at the school. Uh, So I just started showing him the plasma ball and we got on like a house on fire and I was like, okay, this is brilliant. This is the kind of kids that we're going to have here. We're going to have students here who are really fascinated. And then I spoke to the secretary years later, the secretary that was sort of looked after me on the day. And she said that was one of the main things that she said was the way that I handled that young student who was nervously waiting for his interview. That was one of the things that, that swung it. And so what was one of your favourite demonstrations that you did at the the kids' parties whilst you were figuring out what to do? Once I did a party for for three- and four-year-olds, luckily I had a big box of bouncy balls and everything was bombing until I got out the box of bouncy balls, got out a couple, and then realised they were really into the idea of these bouncy balls. So I just tipped the box of bouncy balls onto this hall floor and they just spent the rest of the 25, 30 minutes running around off these bouncy balls and throwing them. I can imagine there was a lot of Brownian star motion going on there. There was, there was, amongst the balls and the kids. Yes. (laughs) 
I mean, what what is it like teaching day to day? I mean, you said earlier in the conversation that, you know, you wanted to have a job where you could basically have kids science parties every day of the week. And is that what it felt like? Not for the first two years. I think there's a period when you start teaching, when you think you have to do loads and loads of marking and you think you or you feel you have to be at the front of the classroom performing all the time. And those two things are both exhausting, unnecessary and potentially counterproductive. For instance, a lot of marking that gets done, the kids look at the number at the top and then they forget about it. And actually there are way better ways to give feedback. Performing at the front of a classroom takes all your energy, doesn't give the kids a lot of opportunity to do stuff. So those two things, the sooner you can divest yourself of the sense that you should be doing them all the time, replace that with a sense that you need to do things that focus on what the students are doing in response to what they're doing and in response to what you're asking for, the better. Now, not everyone will have the same problem as me, right? I quite like to perform. How would you suggest someone make sure that they don't fall into that trap of, you know, relying on marking and, and the, the numbers and the figures and, and making sure that they don't perform? The crucial thing with not performing is to focus your planning on what the students are going to do, not what you're going to say. And if you can focus on what the students are going to do, that gives you a good start in avoiding you doing stuff. Can you give an example of a typical physics lesson where you focus on, on the kids yeah, doing so, things? Um, let's say you've got to teach centres of mass, levers, that sort of thing. You could show the video of Penn and Teller creating the trick where they drive a lorry over Penn or Teller. I don't know which one's which. And when they do that trick... They then afterwards do a reveal. And you could quite easily show that video and then explain that video and then have a conversation with the children. But you can easily end up doing longer explanation than you really need. And you might have had a lot more fun if you show them the video up to the point of the reveal, stop it, and then ask them to design using the few facts that you've given them up front at the beginning, say, um, or that you've taught them in previous lessons using other techniques, you show them up to the point of the reveal, stop the video, and then you have a competition to see who can design the best way of achieving that trick. You set some simple rules for that competition, like you've got one sheet of A4, you've got to have a sequence of at least three diagrams that show what's going to happen through time, you don't make it complicated. And once they have then created those resources, leave a reasonable amount of time, which you decide based on your class and your knowledge of your class, having done that, you get them to come up and present before you then get the students to judge them. So notice this at this point, I've done nothing except for tee up this and, and kind of facilitate the competition and keep it moving. And all the time, they're working, and I'm just going around and spending my time looking at them, watching them work, asking them questions. So all of my effort is put into looking at what they are doing. 
what made you move away from teaching? Because clearly, from the way you explained your, your job and your role, you, you loved being a teacher. You, it's been part of your, your life since you were, you know, since you were a teen. So why, why move away from teaching as a career? I haven't moved away from it. I've moved towards something else. And uh, this, this sort of started from how to use my summer holidays in a constructive way. Right, so two years ago, I was talking with my friend about projects in the sort of VC area. And he was a financier, so I'd, I decided to ask him about what sort of things would be useful from an analysis point of view for a financier when it comes to thinking about VC. And he said, well, we've been thinking about trying to do more to um, analyze the innovations that might disrupt or replace some of the products of some of the investments we make on behalf of our clients. Um, and so we concocted a six-week research program, so back to research again. And then it became a contract that I ran in my spare time, doing a bit of holidays, um, became holidays and weekends, became holidays, weekends and evenings. Um, gradually over time, snowballed a little bit to the point where we were talking about uh, creating a full-time role. For those of us who have no idea, what is an innovation analyst? An innovation analyst um, is someone who looks at the innovations that are happening on the horizon and tries to work out what impact they might have on, the, um, on other businesses. I get the opportunity to get paid to go out and quiz people about really fascinating businesses, many of which are based in the sciences. So I've talked to uh, various different quantum technology businesses, and I might talk to a woman who wants to set up a business looking at biomarkers from um, different data sources um, in, in health technologies and build that into a data set that can be used to train an AI. That is now a typical uh, meeting, if I can get it. It sounds like your job is incredibly varied and you meet a broad range of, of people from various backgrounds in various scientific disciplines. Does that ever yes. make you feel like you're out of your depth? I've spent my entire life feeling like I'm maybe slightly out of my depth. And, and I think that that's a common feeling amongst human beings, right? You just keep working and you just make sure that you're ahead. And as long as you're ahead and as long as you're being open and honest and you keep talking to the people that you work with, then any shortcomings that you have will be presented to you. And don't second guess yourself. Let other people tell you when you're coming up short and then do something about it. Or rationally observe what it is you need to do to train yourself up to the level to, that you want to be at and get on with that. Otherwise, we'd all just be hiding in corners. Thanks to Dr. Tom Weller.
In the penultimate episode of this series, I'm going to explore transitions between different disciplines. I'll speak again to two different scientists, one who has transitioned from physics to biophysics and another who has moved from neuroscience to physics. Here's a sneak preview. It was very liberating in the sense that there was very much no expectation I would understand much about the biology of the work I was doing because that wasn't my background. My background was in making things and engineering things on the nanoscale. And so things like imposter syndrome weren't really there. It went away because I was very much an imposter. I, was, I wasn't expected to know these things. And so weirdly enough, that was, it was quite freeing and I could just be myself and ask lots of silly questions about, oh, what's that and how does that work? Um, and not worry too much about it because there was, there was no sense I should know that. Now that's it for this episode. But you can always find out more about what the Nature Careers team is up to. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and of course, there's the website www.nature.com forward slash careers. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould.